when you start seeing really good retention, um, really good conversion rates, um, that might be an indicator that, uh, you know, you should um, think about where you have more weakness and try to get stronger there. If you're a tech leader looking to learn today's best practices for leading high-functioning teams, you're in the right spot. In each episode, we learn from today's top tech leaders as they share their successes, their failures, and their lessons learned along the way. I'm Debbie Madden, and this is the Scaling Tech Podcast, your blueprint for scaling tech teams. Let's dive in. All right. Hey, everyone. Today, I am beyond thrilled to be talking to Mike Buford. Hey, Mike, how you doing? I'm good. How are you? Good. So we're going to be talking with Mike. Mike is, amongst many things, the CTO of Greenhouse, a company that I've been very familiar with for many, many years now. And we're going to be talking about how to think about expanding customer segmentation after you've hit your product market fit. And so before we dive in, uh, a little bit about Mike. So um, I did not know this, but you, um, you, 11 years ago, you actually wrote your first lines of code at Greenhouse, and you've continued to scale with the company as CTO, as we mentioned. Grew your team to about 150 employees, helped the company uh, grow to 200 million of ARR, which is a milestone that few SaaS companies achieve, and that's absolutely true, and that's a big milestone. And then even before Greenhouse, you've done many things among them, led engineering teams at Reuters. You actually ran your own consulting business. So you and I have a lot to talk about there on a different podcast episode. <laughs> um, and then and then and spend time in a few other small startups. Um, and also uh, you're an engaged advisor within the startup ecosystem, which I love about you. Uh, also a middling guitarist and a solid karaoke singer, which I did not know. Um, I am neither of those things. <laughs> and and most importantly, a husband and father to two twin two-year-old girls and a four-year-old who thinks she's 13. So uh, I don't even know how you have time for this podcast. So thank you. <laughs> thank you for being here. Um, all right. So product market fit and expanding customer segmentation as it relates to Greenhouse is to me such a fascinating topic because Greenhouse, you got your initial product market fit inside of a year. I mean, that's really hard to do, right? You entered an existing market, and some may say a crowded, but somewhat antiquated market. And um, you really kind of became beloved by uh, smaller, like scaling tech companies, right? And and so also at that same time, which which I just recently learned, you got pulled up market because amongst your first 20 customers, were the likes of Airbnb, Pinterest, Uber, and Snapchat. So now you have enterprise customers and startup customers. And so, um, you know, how did you think about, okay, we hit product market fit versus did we really hit product market fit? Like, let's jump into that first, and then we'll go into how did you think about changing it? And then we'll talk about once you did realize, all right, we have we have an enterprise market, then we'll get into how do you handle all the conflicting inbound requests. But let, let, let's start with, you know, like, how did you know you had it? And then how did you know you also had this, this secondary customer segment? Yeah, sure. Um, so why don't we actually start at a period just before I came? So okay. um, yeah, I, I showed up at Greenhouse about four months after the company was incorporated as the first employee actually out there you know, writing code. And, and thankfully, I'd been programming for a long time. So I knew I'd do that, which was which was good. Um, but uh, 
there was this idea that Dan and John, um, you know, Dan, Dan Chait and John Strauss had together. Um, they'd gone to college together. They you know, wanted to start a company together and were, were friends in New York and started brainstorming lots and lots of ideas. Um, they were pretty open-minded about what it could be. Um, and I think that was actually an interesting founder insight, by the way, of just like, you know, pick the person maybe before the problem because like, yeah. huh. we married to both. Um, but the relationship with the person is, is uh, you know, a really important one to get right early on. Um, Absolutely. So, you know, they chatted with a bunch of CEOs and they're like, what's your biggest problem? They said hiring, you know, trying to get the right people into the right seats. And so they thought, okay, maybe there's something there. And Dan Shade had gotten really good at figuring out, you know, sort of systems for hiring because he was an engineer by training. And so he had thought of recruiting as a systems problem. Like there's a certain number of people that need to be brought into the top of the funnel. They'll convert at a certain rate. We can segment to them like this. We have to ask, uh, you know, questions that get at whether they really have the skills. Um, he had an insight that, there are a lot of people who are not getting recruited by banks. Um, he started a company called Lab 49 because they didn't have the pedigree that banks were expecting. Banks were expecting like, so did you go to Harvard, Princeton or Yale? And if the answer was none, like maybe you didn't get an interview in the first place. Meanwhile, there are these amazing programmers. So he got really good at um, building skills-based interviewing capabilities and wound up figuring out like, what is the shape of a recruiting machine? which I think was one of the key insights. And so he wound up building a course along with John called How to Make Hiring a Strength of Your Company and delivered it as at General Assembly. And ah, the core idea was ah. we should do some type of structured interviewing. We should get people to figure out like, what am I actually looking for? How do I assess whether the candidate has those things? What's going to happen in what order? Who needs to be involved? Some of these questions actually seem really, really simple about how the process is going to run. None of that was baked into an applicant tracking system or any of the recruiting software that people were using at the time. It so wasn't. The, it was a foreign... I, I remember speaking with, with Dan when he was coming up with this idea and instantly thinking, yep, he's building a better mousetrap because it wasn't... We take it for granted today, but you're absolutely right. Those things did not exist within the systems at the time. I remember the day like it was yesterday. So yeah, yeah. It, was, it was like an online filing cabinet, right? Like candidates yeah, yeah. come in, you pull them out, you look at the stuff, <laughs> and then everything happens offline. But there's no coordination, right. um, you know. And and so I think he figured out that that was a problem that could be solved with you know this this way of systems thinking. And at the end of the course, it was like everyone was begging for more of his time and trying to figure out, you know, how do I integrate this into my company in practice? Um, and that helped validate the idea of, of yeah. where they're headed. Uh, John had come up with an index card prototype and started pitching it to a bunch of people, um, you know, about how it might work to run candidates through a process and create structure around it. That went really well. So they incorporated a company and, and you know, uh, hired me. And I, uh, you know, thankfully was able to um, get one of the best people I'd ever worked with to come join me. And so he and I were the first programmers at Greenhouse. We spent about 10 months just building and building and building with no idea whether it would be successful or not. Um, you know, really hard. I, I, will, I will save the, uh, oh, my God, it was so hard, early stage startup <laughs> stories. But like, it, was, it was hard. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and then, you know, after 10 months. Dan and John um, had figured out a unique angle of attack into the market, which was to go to the venture capital talent partners and show them what they were building. Ah, okay. So the thing that they heard was repeatability, you know, decreased bias, structure, more likely to make high quality hires. And so they became our advocates. And so we actually didn't have a website, a like marketing website, www.greenhouse.io returned nothing until we got to 200 customers. Wow. 
And so it was entirely word of mouth and producing talent partners were the initial catalyst. So they called all the portfolio companies and were like, hey, you got to start using this. And then um, the startup world is is a small insular place as uh, anyone who's spent a bunch of time in it realizes. And so they all talked with each other. And so, um, like you said, in our first 20 customers, you know, we got Airbnb and Pinterest and Uber and Snapchat. I think we got WeWork too in in the first 20. And so, um, you know, a lot of the hardest startups that had this huge scaling problem ahead uh, realized, you know, writing stuff down and, and creating some structure around it was going to help them succeed in scaling faster. And so that's how we got the very first taste of product market fit. Okay. So some of that I did not know. And I think many people listening probably did not know as well. Um, And so how did you, in the early days, it sounds like you had more of a splintered um, um, customer segmentation than I even realized. Right. And so how do you, how do you think about your, your customer segmentation? Like, would you be able to clearly tell me how many different segments you have today? Yeah. Um, I mean, so today we break it down into, um, and there are sub-segments even within okay. segments. Okay. So we, we say SMB is up to 100 employees. Then mid-market is a, a broader bucket from 100 to 1,000 employees. Mid-market one is 100 to 250. Uh, 250 to 1,000 is mid-market two. And then uh, we have various grades of enterprise. So from like 1,000 up, um, you know, there might be, uh, you know, enterprise one segment, two, three, depending on you know, the size of, of the company. So do these do these customer segments, um, do they command different attentions from your from your tech team, right? Like how do you hand how do you handle servicing their needs? Um, because I imagine like a, a small business that has one person looking at the talent pipeline needs significantly different reporting requirements, for example, than an organization that has teams of teams. And so, you know, and there's many more examples, but how do you, how do you think about product market fit in terms of really balancing the demands on, on your, you are the CTO, you're running the tech organization. How do you, how do you prioritize all the different disparate requests? There's, there's sort of like technique of how we do it. And then, you know, prioritization within it, Um, you know, technique, I think is uh, try to identify, you know, what does each customer cohort need? And then how do you know that they're actually being successful? Probably the best indicators, which, you know, don't, aren't always leading indicators and are lagging indicators are things like, you know, our customers churning or, you know, leading indicator okay. might be, are they converting at a relatively high rate? Are we seeing, uh, you know, high or low competitive wins or competitive losses? All of those are signals on whether for a given subsegment, as we're reporting, um, you know, whether there's relatively good product market fit. And of course, you just hear even anecdotal stuff. You go to a dinner and they're like, oh, I have a hundred person business. I'm using Greenhouse. We love it. Or by the way, if only you guys did X, Y, Z, then we would love it. But it's, you know, totally a bad fit. You get all of that type of feedback and it, it helps inform the product. When you start seeing really good retention, um, really good conversion rates, um, that might be an indicator that, uh, you know, you should um, think about where you have more weakness and try to get stronger there as opposed to continue trying to sort of maximize in an area where you're already doing well. I think this mm-hmm. kind of maps to the Pareto principle or like 80-20 rule. You know, yeah. if you're already getting most of the benefit from your work, you don't want to end up in the flat part at the top of the S-curve, um, you know, uh, too, too early on because then that's wasted effort. And instead, you want to find yourself somewhere in the middle of the S-curve somewhere else um, and invest more of your resources towards uh, the steep climb that you get from putting effort in over there. And that, I guess, just to come back to, it's like often 
enterprise, but enterprise is a definition changes. So, you know, early, early on, just for example, we had as our eighth customer, um, the agency huge, I don't know yep. if uh, they're, they're a big, big New York agency. Yep. Um, and I think they were at the time, maybe like a thousand people. Um, and when they tried to load all of their jobs, and this is you know, humiliating, but very dated facts like 10 years ago, um, when they tried to load all of their jobs in our early version of the product, like the page literally wouldn't load because we'd never had so many jobs on a single page. Right. That was kind of like in order to get. So that was that was our like F game. Right. It was like you can't use the product. OK, that's yeah. like terrible. You don't want to have an F, <laughs> you know, for any segment. And so we then spent the next few days you know, fixing that so it would work well. And then it was like, OK, well, now they can start using the product effectively. And so it would be better to have, uh, you know, a B than an F there rather than get go from a B plus to an A, um, you know, with someone who uh, was already succeeding. I think, yeah, I think that's, I think that's really important. And I'm sure there are stakeholders um, all the time fighting for competing priorities, because I, I imagine that there are stakeholders that say, I need to get my customer segmentation from A to A plus, <laughs> whereas, whereas, you know, okay, if we had unlimited resources, that might be a thing we can do. But at this moment, we need to take the F to the B first before we take the A to the A plus. Um, and that's that's a really interesting way to look about it. Um, look at it. Now, do you ever on the on the um, uh, one extreme side of things, do you ever get tempted to um, do anything bespoke or custom for either a customer segment or a customer? Is that ever a thing that you like, oh, this is not a value to anybody else, but we have this one unique customer that's so important to our business that we're going to like build a feature set just for them and almost like become consultative <laughs> to them? Is that we've, we've done that a couple of times and learned our lesson. I think any mm-hmm. enterprise company had said that they, you know, maintain discipline and said no 100% of the time, I think is probably lying if they've gotten to scale. Okay, um, right. But- <laughs> You know, but the lesson that I think a lot of people pretty consistently learn is, um, you know, it's a distributive problem. Let's say that you have, you know, 50 engineers and the engineers can work on uh, 50 engineers worth of stuff. If you start committing in your sales contract to 10 engineers or 20 engineers or 30 engineers worth of stuff um, that really only benefits one customer, then there's this huge opportunity cost because you don't get to invest in your broader customer base and they all suffer as a result. And so we did go down those paths a couple of times. When we did, it was usually, you know, I think the very first instance was uh, our biggest customer ever is going to churn if we don't X, Y, Z thing. That's a compelling reason to, right? Yeah, we're still a relatively high percentage of of revenue, which, you know, is always good SaaS advice. Like don't have too much revenue concentration in any one customer anyway, so you don't end up in that position. Another was, um, you know, we know that we need to learn going up market. And so let's pick, you know, there, there was this one company that was, fervent about using greenhouse. Um, and they had lots of requirements that we would have normally said no to, but they would have kind of like notched us into the next, you know, territory, um, you know, in terms of how, how, uh, you know, big and important it could be. And if what their problem was, was representative of what other people had as the same problem in, in that segment, then it would actually be worthwhile in the end. Anyway, we would, we would, you know, not just be doing it for them. We would be doing it in a way that would benefit everyone. So that was kind of like the second big justification in a whole year of roadmap. A few years later, they're no longer there because we didn't really build the product, um, you know, that was right for them in the first place. We were trying to adapt it. And so I do think one mm-hmm. of the key things 
brains to figure out in, in qualifying customers is who's going to be successful with the product we have today and who's going to be successful with the product we expect to have in the very near future. And if we don't think that they're going to be successful because the problem we solve is not the most important problem to them, they have a bunch of other things they're concerned with, then maybe stop them at the front door and don't take their money. Just That's really hard real, yeah. to do, but like good discipline to have. That's really hard to do. Um, and that that kind of lesson learned of um, after you put in the investment, um, a year later, they were no longer a customer. It's not that it's... Um, their fault or your fault. It's more of, of, um, it was almost always meant to be probably right. Like it was like, and that's why I think that the, the lesson of stop them at the front door is, is, is such an important way to look at this because, um, uh, both parties, I think were holding on to something that they, if they would have let go of sooner would have better been better for both sides. Right. Yeah. And I think with Greenhouse has so many customers and such a valuable tool for so many tech teams that, um, you know, I think this is such a kind of a valuable lesson learned from a company that's doing so many things so well. Right. It's like you guys yeah. are, you know, you are a nationally known brand. You're valuable to all companies that, that I've ever talked to. Everyone I know knows Greenhouse. Right. And so that that lesson is um I think people think that you have to be all things to all people in order to succeed as a startup, right? As a scaling tech company. And and your te- what I'm hearing is, you know, it's the it's the opposite. You really do have to make some decisions that are going to benefit you and your customers today and 6 to 12 months down the road, right? Yeah. And and I I think there's actually another um another fork in the road that we came to just after making that second mistake that's worth talking about for for a minute, okay. which is we had an even bigger potential customer, like a Fortune okay. 100 company that was, you know, the C levels were like we have to buy greenhouse no matter what, you know, and and okay. you know, we really felt like we weren't ready. We would spent every conversation trying to talk them out of it and they just kept getting us to more and more senior people who were like, <laughs> "Yes, send us the contract. Yes. Like, we want to do this thing." Okay. Okay. And the 150,000 person global company, um, you know, and, and the number of adaptations we would have to have made, and this was maybe six or seven years ago, were really significant. Like we didn't feel like they would be set up for sex, success, even if they did, because I think they saw it as, well, we have to use one of these old terrible systems and that's not good for our business. We want to bet on you and, you know, invest in you and money was no object and all of that sort of stuff. So that was a reckoning point when, you know, we got far enough in the process that it looked like, you know, they really want to sign a contract and give us, They're you know, ready. you know, right. a huge pile of money. Are we going to take it knowing what the implications were? And that led to us getting really clear about our ideal customer profile. Before that, we said, there's really big companies and we're going to think about them on a one-off basis. We're going to review each one and say, how good a fit are they? And, you know, we'll try to talk them out of it if they're a bad fit, but it's really hard to get the AE to say no and actually disqualify them, right? Like the AE is investing time. They only get paid if the deal closes. They don't want to hear that this is not a viable deal once it's in flight. And, uh, you know, we changed the ICP over time, but the idea was, let's get really specific about like what type of company, you know, it's like, you know, as an example, like, is it 
knowledge workers? Is it high volume hiring? Is it, you know, this country or that country? Is it all languages or this language? Is it, you know, uh, you know this size company or that size company? How, how big do we think we can support? And so we define the ICP around um, the sort of like proximate target the first time around, which was, uh, you know, I, I won't get into the details of exactly what it was, but let's just say like, you know, medium size-ish, uh, you know, enterprise customers where we felt like, okay, we know we can do well with them. We know we're going to add value. There's a few things to do that we know we can, you know, accomplish in the next year that's going to um, keep them happy so that they're going to be renewing at a really high yeah. rate. And then once we've satisfied all of those things and we feel like, you know, we've nailed it, we know that we have great product market fit in that segment, then we start working on the next segment and we do it with intentionality. We say, where do we expect our future market expansion to come from? Um, we identify, you know, is it from adding more, uh, you know, more reps in, in you know, Germany and then you have a whole different set of requirements versus mm -hmm. are we adding bigger companies or companies that hire lots of people in warehouses? And that informs the type of ICP you expand into the next time around. And based on that, um, it informs your product roadmap. And you should focus on the problems that are going to help uh, you know, solve solve the issues that someone in that next segment might run into. Okay. So, okay. So now what you just said led me thinking. You had said at the top of this 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 podcast that, you know, product market fit is an evolving, you know, living thing. And now what you've just talked about kind of gives some color to that. So my question is, how do you iterate through identifying that core customer? Is it, is it more akin to OKRs where you say, okay, every year we're going to, um, think about our customer segmentation or are there, or is it more, um, which is a more proactive, um, you know, kind of annual way to do it, or is it reactive where there's triggers or is it where like, Oh, if this trigger happens, then we need to rethink it. Or is it both? Like, how do you, you've been at this 10 years now. Right. Um, and so how, again, greenhouse is successful, you're scaling, you've reached all these milestones. Like, how do you make it, how do you make sure it's, you iterate on this without always, without taking too much time is what I guess what I'm saying. Yeah. I mean, I think there's, there's a couple of dimensions to it, right? There's, there's maybe specific stages and gates that you might set up for okay. moving from one ICP um, to another. And, uh, and, and so let's take an example criteria. Let's, let's take uh, performance for the 95th percentile of users within companies in the 1000 to 5000 person segment. Okay. <laughs> right. I can measure that and I can set service level objectives around it. And if I see that, you know, I'm not meeting the service level objective um, because there's, you know, page X is still slow and, you know, that crop of users uses it, even if it's fine for everyone else, um, you know, and that's an important part of the workflow, that's kind of a blocker. So that's like a, a blocker as part of the sort of gate that I have to get past in order right. to even compare the next market. So let's say that there's a bunch right. of those types of things. Some of them are business metrics. Some of them are, are you know, technical metrics that we might use. If we've ticked a bunch of those boxes, 
um, you know, we should already have and already do have um, a good market mapping sense of like, what are the next markets we could go into? Okay. How big are they? You know, what's the TAM? What's the SAM, uh, you know, that, that we have today? You know, how could we, you know, do we have good leverage to increase the sort of SAM to TAM ratio? How, how uh, you know, big of, of that market, you know, or how much of that market can we service effectively? Um, and then we would decide, are we going to align our roadmap with pursuing this market? If the answer is yes, um, and, you know, you kind of have a good sense of how many dollars are under the curve. And this all then fits into the broader business picture of, you know, you want to achieve certain metrics for your business. You know, do you want to grow at a certain rate? Do you want to have certain margins? Do you want to have, uh, you know, whatever your other business metrics are? And so you have to align market expansion, um, you know, generally, whether it's geographic or, or you know, vertical or you know, moving up market um, with the product plan and ultimately with the financial plan that the business puts together. Right, right, and and so and so this this kind of ties into um, an area I wanted to touch on with you, in terms of like you know, uh, as you scale, right? It's it's you know you have to think about continuously scaling from a technical perspective, and you also have to think about um, how much weight you're putting on horizontal versus vertical scaling, and of course that ties back into what are the overall business objectives. But talk to me about. Um, kind of what you're seeing there, what what lessons you've learned along the way when it comes to, um, you know, really kind of how you think about scaling as it pertains to product market fit. Yeah. Um, let's let's talk about technical and product scaling somewhat separately because okay. both yeah. are yeah. scaling. Um, and then there's also services scaling. So maybe I'll even get into the, the okay. whole. Yeah. So on, on the technical side, um, you know, depending on your type of application, you might actually choose a different architecture. I remember for years and years, everyone was sort of like, microservices is the you know solution to all problems. And right. anytime anyone thinks anything is the solution to all problems, I usually have a visceral reaction that it's probably <laughs> not. Um, you know, I, I think I identify as a pragmatist and and you know at least want to make whatever the the sort of appropriate decision is uh, yeah. given the context. For a SaaS product where you might have data segmentation, so I have uh, each organization that uses Greenhouse, each, each company that uses it, they don't really need to see anyone else's data. Right. They're running their own data. So I have a perfect shard key. I can separate people out onto different instances. And so uh, we had the realization pretty early on, hey, we can have many instances of greenhouse and put a bunch of you know tenants in, in the same uh, you know sort of uh, you know, flow is, is the term that we use. Um, mm -hmm. Its own database, its own web server, its own you know everything, uh, and it will continue scaling basically forever. Now, if okay. you went and got Walmart as a customer, like Walmart corporate, you know, 2 million, 2.2 million employees or, or whatever it is that they have, you might run into vertical scaling limitations that you don't run into if you have 10,000 person companies, 500 person companies, right. 30,000 person companies. So that, that might run into a vertical scaling limit. But we knew for the markets that we went after, including, you know, mid to large size enterprise, but not the biggest companies in the world, this model would continue working. So that helped us um, stop thinking about, oh, my God, the site's going to fall over and it's going to stop working if we add more customers. I think that's a critical mm -hmm. problem for any CTO or even CPO who's thinking about, uh, you know, the important stuff in order to continue growing the business to, to solve early and feel confident you can add customers. Then on the product side, there's all kinds of crazy stuff. Um, we got a particular customer that had uh, 12,000 offices. We didn't realize anyone could have 12,000 offices at a like 15,000 person company. Um, it turned out uh, in this particular case, 
it, it was actually a bunch of golf courses. Each golf course counted as an office and they hired one person or something. Wow. Each thing. Um, and so that was That's like a, a thing where, you know, we hadn't quite set up the product in ways that would account for the fact there were like 12,000 offices. I mean, That's like a product yeah. feeling thing. Like, how, how do you get through you? the drop yeah. down? How do you populate it? How do you report on those things? What cost does it have to join 12,000 of these things to something else? And you, you know, those, those pop up as you scale across every dimension you could possibly imagine. And a lot of them aren't just technical performance. It's like, how do you present the information? Uh, how, how do you, how do you when, when you're talking about a drop down of 10 and then all you have to a drop down of 12,000, that's a different, that's a, yeah, that is a very interesting, um, I hadn't thought about it in terms of, uh, customer segmentation in terms of the way that your customers have needs, um, it's not it's not only about the size of their business or how they're using your tool, but all of these other elements, like how many physical offices do they have? Yeah. Um, that's that's and, and who would have thought that it was so close to one to one office to employee at such a large scale? Um, that's the, that's the fact, like I was expecting you to say a hundred thousand employees at least. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. So like a tiny thing, like, and, and you scale in all these different dimensions and kind of like learn as you go, There's lots of product stuff to do there. And then, you yeah. know, I mean, running, running, uh, you know, an awesome services business and having, uh, you know, infinitely more knowledge than me, but like the way you service big customers varies a lot in terms of their expectations, Absolutely. budget, how much handling they need versus other smaller customers. So, you know, where we might've had a service model that was built around mid market it really early on where it was like, we're going to get on, we're going to be prescriptive about, you know, what you should be doing. Uh, you know, we'll spend a few hours with you. We'll do some standard trainings and then we'll touch base on a regular basis. Like that might be yeah, an abstract of like a good mid, uh, you know, mid, mid-sized company flow at right. large enterprise. It might be like, no, you have like a hundred stakeholders who know you exist. There's a whole team of several different people on it. You're meeting weekly. You're in a shared Slack channel. You have professional mm-hmm. services looped in and you have customer success and you have account management. And, uh, you know, you need to be less prescriptive in certain areas and do more project management, totally different motion. And so uh, when you start getting bigger customers, you can't just say, okay, Yay, we got our next biggest customer. They're now 10,000 employees are, you know, and, and uh, let's throw our customer success people at them and hope it goes well. Hope right. it's on a plan. And, and, you know, you need to adapt your motion to you know, what that segment needs. And so product market fit when, you know, since we're sort of on that topic, there's like product market fit for services, the product itself and the you know, underlying technical solution. Um, and they all kind of have to be figured out in order to really succeed with the customer at the next level. Yeah, yeah. And and so that ties me to kind of like the last question I have for you, which it's a broad question. And um, if we had three hours, I'm sure we could fill it. But I mean, you started at Greenhouse, not probably knowing most of what you just told me, right? I mean, you started writing code and now you are solving problems on a whole nother level for a, a scale of a company that was, it just was, you know, just an infant company when you joined. And so how have you adapted your skills and those around you to, to balance that, that, that learning and like, and that implementation of that strategy, right? So how have you, how have you kind of grown up with the business? Yeah. Uh, I mean, super broad question, I guess to get. It's a broad uh, question. Yeah. <laughs> To get specific into one thing, like I, I think 
I actually used to kind of joke with people that business was my hobby. And so even before I'd done anything noteworthy, like I always read, you know, about business and economics and, you know, financial mm. stuff outside of just programming. Like, you know, I, I think yeah. I always dreamed of being the type of person who would actually just read sci-fi and fiction, but I was attracted mm. to, you know, more like having a lot of breadth and understanding how all the, the bits um, fit yeah. together. And then when the business really started scaling, I realized, well, I don't know anything about like, you know, 10 of these other functions that are coming up. Um, how do I, you know, learn them? And it wasn't really just the feeling of fear, but there was like a tinge of like, you know, I've, I've got to, I've got to learn how all this stuff works in order to be a, you know, relevant person at the table, um, right. you know, through a bunch of these conversations. So I had a little formula where I said, you know, read at least two books or at least two books equivalent of content on every other function in the business. And so I read two marketing books and two sales books, and I took a finance management certificate online and I, you know, did a bunch of things to try to make sure I, you know, ran customer support for a while. I read customer support books and customer success books. And I think all of those things um, then applied at work where I could then have a next level conversation because I had a better foundation, allowed me to learn a lot more about how all the business worked and, and yeah, fit together. And I would say that, uh, you know, Jerry Seinfeld was telling about like, you're good at what you love on a podcast that I was listening to. Like, if yeah. you love it, you're going to be great at it. And I, I kind of, you know, I loved greenhouse. I loved, uh, you know, business. I loved being, you know, part of, um, you know, being able to solve problems. And and so I think I loved the process of learning all of those things. And so it was pretty easy to do. Uh, that's that. that's that's a I love I love I'm glad that I asked you this question because it's a little adjacent to our initial topic. But what you just shared, I think, is such an important. Um, takeaway for myself and I hope for others, because um, what I heard in addition to what you said was um, this kind of came from within you, right? I mean, you weren't mandated by your CEO to read two books. You weren't mandated to learn about finance or marketing or, or uh, all the other areas of business. And, and, and also you didn't go deeper than you had time for, but you started with a, a very kind of, um, you know, very easy to follow, you know, key result, which is I'm going to read two books on this topic and then we're going to see what happens and then other learnings from there. But I think that, 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 that really for me resonates with how you've approached product market fit at Greenhouse over the last decade, because you have brought this, um, like breath, like, you know, you go deep on the technical, how are we going to organize our product? How are we going to scale? How are we going to think about the different technology needs of our different customer segments? And also sprinkled within, I have heard um, uh, lenses that, that, that impact finance, marketing, um, long-term health of the business, employee retention. And so now hearing how you got all of that, it all kind of fits together. So I, I'm, I'm really glad that you shared that tip. So I think we'll wrap, wrap here. Um, I really, uh, you have a lot going on at home and at work. So um, I really appreciate you taking the time with us today. It's been a fascinating conversation. Uh, thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure. My pleasure. Always great chatting with you, Debbie. Thanks, Mike. Take care. Hey everyone, if you've enjoyed today's episode, remember to subscribe, give it five stars, and more importantly, share it with someone that you think will benefit from listening. And remember, as always, think about the one to two key takeaways that you can apply today to help you and your team achieve your goals. Until then, keep iterating.